Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello and welcome. My name is Jacob Steele, the events manager for Banyan Books and Sound. This evening, we are delighted to host Bradley Weininger in conversation with Michael Carney for a discussion of Bradley's new book, Heart Medicine, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Peace and Freedom at Last. Before introducing our honored guests, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that although we have participants joining us from all around the world this evening, the physical location of Banyan Books is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Now for the introductions. Raduli Weininger, PhD, MD, is a clinical psychologist, founder of the nonprofit Mindful Heart Programs, and teacher of deep mindfulness and compassion practices in Buddhist psychology. She began her meditation studies in 1980 at Black Rock Monastery in Sri Lanka. For the past 20 years, she has mentored in her teaching by Jack Cornfield and by Joanna Macy in her interest in engaged Buddhism. She is the author of Heart Work, The Path of Self-Compassion, and Heart Medicine, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Freedom and Peace at Last. You'll find lots of free online classes that she leads at mindfulheartprograms.org. Michael Carney, MD, is a physician specializing in hospice and palliative medicine with over 35 years experience. He lived in Ireland, England, France, and Canada before moving to the United States in 2001. He currently lives in Santa Barbara, California, where he is a founding partner of Palliative Care Consultants of Santa Barbara. He's the author of several books, including Mortally Wounded and Nest in the Stream. Raduli Weininger and Michael Carney are the founding teachers of Mindful Heart Programs. Tonight's uh, featured book, Heart Medicine, has four words from His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Joanna Macy. Buddhist teacher Tara Brock has described the book as a beautiful invitation to discover and heal the persistent patterns that create suffering in our lives. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has written, by reducing our tendency towards disturbing mental states, we experience greater peace of mind and I hope that Raduli Weininger's book will inspire readers to build their confidence to lead a more meaningful life. On behalf of Banyan Books, it's an honor to welcome you both. I now turn it over to you, Raduli and Michael, to commence the conversation. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you very much. And good evening, everybody. And uh, thank you for joining us. Um, so Raduli, I, I guess one, one piece in the um, in the introduction um, and Jacob's uh, kind introduction, just one piece to add to the introduction, and that is that Bradley and I are also husband and wife, which happens to be why we're here this evening on the couch with our dog, Lucy, who you see here. So, um, so um, Radley, just to begin the conversation, um, your first book was called Heart Work, The Path of Self-Compassion, uh, Nine Practices for Opening the Heart. And your, your second book, as we've just heard, your current book is Heart Medicine, uh, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Peace and Freedom at Last. 
Um, could we begin the conversation by you just telling us why you wanted to write the second book, why you wanted to write this book? All right. Um, my first book, working on self-compassion, seemed really important for me. Often my books come out of my own personal work to make friends with myself and to find a way to do that. And um, I found, however, that there were these long-standing painful patterns in my life that were repeating themselves and coming over and over again. And then in conversation with my mentor, Jack Hornfield, who always encouraged me to work on this and to write about this, I started to think, how can we find a way between the Western psychological and the spiritual, the Buddhist psycho psychological, to find a way forward through these um, really difficult conditions that we need to work with. And I was just um, seeing in myself and my clients and students how um, the, these patterns are so tenacious and repetitive and come again and again as if we were sitting ducks to these lerps, as I call them, long-standing recurrent painful patterns that I decided to write a book about it. Thank you. Maybe for, you know, at to to say a little more about uh, what you mean by when you talk about a long-standing recurrent painful pattern um and you sometimes in your book you you call it a lerp l-r-p-p -P. um so it has a sort of an onomatopoeic ring about it um can you say a little bit more about what what a lerp is mm -hmm. um and maybe give us an example of, right. of a lerp. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, these lerps had different names before. Freud and Jung called them complexes, you know, um, knots of um, emotions, body sensations, memories, sometimes events that happen again and again, sometimes just with different actors in different situations but they have the same feeling tone to them. And so I think long since, at least in Western psychology, people tried to work with them. And then on the Eastern side, they have been described as samskaras or in Pali, shankaras. And uh, there they are actually seen as going through life streams, you know, through lifetimes and are repeating themselves. And um, I felt that there wasn't really a very good way of working with them. You know, we can understand them or we can hope they might wash themselves out or go away. But I just thought it would be so helpful if we found more of a way of working with them. As an example, um, I know LERPs from my own history. Um, I was, uh, the first two years of my life, uh, my mom hid me in a children's home, in an orphanage because she wasn't married. And so, and then my relatives, after she kind of brought me home, were not always nice. So I know from myself a pattern of rejection, of maybe abandonment. And so, which I worked through years of therapy on, but just I saw this kind of patterning repeating themselves, you know, feeling easily rejected, feeling easily abandoned, and sometimes also experiencing that again and again. And it uh, made me curious because I really put in a very big effort to work on this through years of therapy and many decades of meditation. And so um, I got really interested, how can I help others with a similar predicament to work through this? And I realized in myself that they got lighter, that they weren't in the front seat anymore, that they turned to the back seat, that they weren't so disruptive anymore to my 
relationship to life and my relationships uh, to people. And so that's why I got very interested in them. Okay, thank you. Um, you in 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 the first part of your book, um, the the final chapter in the first part of your book is freedom is possible. So mm -hmm. you you describe a little bit lerps what they are, long-standing, recurrent, painful patterns, and how they repeat or can mm -hmm. repeat over time, maybe in different circumstances, um, but with a similar feeling tone. So you can recognize them. Oh, mm -hmm. Here here comes that lerp again, sort of thing. But when you talk about freedom is possible, could you say a little more, you know, that's the, uh, of the, of the Buddha's four noble truths, freedom is possible is the third noble truth, that freedom from suffering is possible. So what does freedom from a long-standing recurrent pattern look like? When we talk mm -hmm. about healing a lerp, or we yes. talk about freedom, what, what can we expect? Well, I think there's a whole continuum of, um, how would I say, freedom that is possible. I think it's definitely a long-standing piece of work. When I felt uh, I needed a few years of therapy and of meditation practice to start feeling a loosening of the grab, a loosening, loosening of the hold on me. And so I think we can definitely expect, if we diligently work on it, a loosening, um, some freedom. I think it's not that they at, totally disappear. You know, it's not like taking an aspirin or even just um, taking an MBSR course. There's more work involved in this. But I think we can expect that they won't be anymore in the front seat of the car grabbing the steering wheel. They will be first maybe in the passenger seat and then in the back seat and hopefully at some point in the trailer. <laughs> and so I think the main thing is that when things happen in now, I recognize it, but it doesn't have that same hold on me, that same grab. Mm. So that recognition is, is an important uh, step in the process of finding freedom. And uh, that's the, the whole second part of your book is 12 steps mm -hmm. towards, um, towards healing. So could you say a little more about that, that process of recognition and what can help in that process mm -hmm. of recognition? So like in all Buddhist practices and in psychotherapy, awareness is really important. Awareness uh, about ourselves, having a methodology to look inward, uh, to be aware of our relationships, being present. So in a way, awareness is the first medicine. But then with this awareness, it's important to notice when we got, as I might call it, lurped, you know, and that often feels like um, maybe um, a physical sensation, like a tightness in the chest, uh, a feeling as if somebody knocked us in the stomach. We might feel hot or cold or a bit dizzy or a bit of tunnel vision, or we might feel suddenly very angry, maybe more than the situation um, would um, uh, be appropriate to. So um, an extraordinary amount of physical sensation and of emotion and of reactivity is usually something where I see, wow, I must have gotten lurked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that awareness um, of that, and uh, and I guess the earlier we can recognize that something has triggered um, the LERP, uh, the better. Mm -hmm. um, can you say, I mean, you're a Western trained psychologist, um, and you're also a Buddhist meditator for many, many years, um, and you really bring those two psychologies together. Western psychology and Buddhist psychology, you bring them both together in your book. 
can you say you know, can talk a little bit about what's helpful about western psychology in approaching alert and what's helpful about buddhist psychology in approaching alert well uh, buddhist meditation is very um at least uh theravadan buddhist meditation that might not be true for all the tibetan styles of meditation is very process oriented you know we don't really go into the content of what happened so we notice and we see the impermanence of it and and we allow it to pass through you know like a leaf on a river going downstream while um, western psychology um, and there are so many different kinds um, but it's a bit more interested in content in understanding what really went on in your childhood you know what really has been going on and to understand that with um, compassion and tenderness and um, real interest helping to understand and often understanding leads to compassion and um, i find especially for us in westerners or maybe i should rather say modernity because i think it's people in in bombay and jakarta and new york alike we uh, need this listening to the story at least maybe once and the feeling deeply together with a trusted person and then uh, buddhist psychology really helps because it encourages us not to let this go into rumination because the story could easily become something we repeat and repeat. I think in Pali, they call that papancha. It's a great word, papancha. So um, with um, Buddhist meditation, we learn to notice and let pass through. And that is, that is really helpful. There is this emphasis on impermanence and change. Mm-hmm. So and you mentioned rumination, yeah, and I, I remember you talk quite a bit about rumination as being one of the one of the almost kind of diagnostic characteristic features of a longstanding recurrent recurrent painful pattern that it can become like a vortex, an energetic vortex internally that kind of pulls all our thinking into its orbit. And, and rumination can be very much part of that. Um, and are you saying that um, that Buddhist psychology is particularly helpful in, mm -hmm. it in, is. in this process? Yeah, it is. Um, because rumination is one of the responses to trauma, you know, that we circle again and again and again about around the wound when we got traumatized. And um, in some ways, then we need both. We need um, insight, mindful noticing, as well as compassion to allow this uh, to pass through mm -hmm. and to even notice that we are ruminating and to bring it back to the felt sense of our body. And then we are in the present moment where, you know, the leaf can go down the river. Mm. Now you mentioned, I think you have one of your, um, one of the chapters in the book is uh, one of the early chapters at the heart of a long-standing recurrent painful pattern is trauma. Mm -hmm. So do you think LERPs are perhaps an unrecognized, um, are not given enough credit as, as one of the, one of the outcomes of trauma? I mean, we hear, we hear about, you know, some of the classic kind of signs of PTSD, for example, mm. like avoidance and, and, um, but, but do you think longstanding recurrent painful patterns are, are, are a feature of, are, are, are an unrecognized feature of, of a lot of trauma? Yeah, uh, definitely or recognized, you know, it's mm -hmm. just not called that. 
mm-hmm. but uh, definitely a trauma leaves a wound mm-hmm. you know and and it's like as if a callus uh, forms around it mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know around this wound to protect this wound mm-hmm. to defend this wound and uh, and that leaves uh, leads then to the repetition the compulsion to repeat mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. okay thank you um so it sounds like kind of one of the early steps is recognition yeah and and it sounds like both self-awareness that can come from you know western psychology and telling the story in a reflective way can be helpful in that but also the mindfulness that comes from meditation practice can be helpful in Mm -hmm. that. And then the mindfulness can also help us recognize when something has triggered one of these old patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, What then? What's the, what's the next step Mm -hmm. in the process? Um, The next step of the, in the process is after we recognize, oh, we have been lurked is, to use our mindfulness skills, you know, to notice, oh yeah, tightness of the chest and allow this to, to be there, to be with it and to notice when it passes by um, or a compulsion to eat a pot of ice cream or get a bottle of whiskey or whatever we feel drawn to do to notice that and then to allow ourselves to not follow that urge. But what's also important is um, self-compassion, you know, having a sense of empathy for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I find that noticing that I have gotten lurked gives me the sense of compassion. Yeah, you know, because often we blame ourselves for being lurked. Why do I take this so serious? Why can't I just let go of that? Why do I even react? Why do I overreact? And often we get this criticism from ourselves and from others. You know, why do you take this so hard? Why are you so reactive? And then noticing that we have gotten lurked and then holding that with empathy and compassion allows us to calm down, you know, allows in a way, the grab to to kind of loosen up. Mm-hmm. And then other steps are what I call the mindful pause, you know, to um, maybe even have a little practice during the day that um, allows me very quickly to um, to work with what happened. Let's say, um, I might feel offended or somebody might feel offended in a meeting, in a board meeting or meeting with colleagues, maybe put down or talked over or whatever might have happened to us. And then we can always, uh, not always, but often excuse ourselves. We have to go to the restroom or get a glass of water or, you know, go to the parking meter or find an excuse to just step out for a moment to take a time out and then to take maybe just two minutes to notice what it feels like in the body to exhale to relax um, to notice that we have been hurt um, to feel the breath going through our heart to offer compassion towards ourselves, um, to um, connect back to breath, and then to notice when we feel ready to re-engage. And such a little mindful pause, as I call them, uh, can be really helpful in, in situations during the day when we can't go off for a weekend retreat or an hour in the morning, then we might just have five minutes. And, and it would seem that the, the process of mindfulness and mindful awareness of what's happening is really key to that. And I notice you talk in both your books um, about the importance of sort of cultivating the background field. So 
um, you know, the difference between a, um, an emotional background field or a psychological background field where you're stressed and you're tired and you're hungry. And if you get triggered against that backdrop or in that kind of context, it's much more likely to lead to the kind of reactive acting out. Whereas if the background field, the energetic background field, uh, psychological is, is, is one of, of more mindfulness um, and one gets triggered, one is more likely to recognize that one has been triggered earlier in the process. Um, how do you, how do you cultivate mm -hmm. the right kind of background field, if you like? Well, I think daily meditation is really helpful. And if we have the luxury to now and then um, go on a retreat, it's wonderful. Um, spending time in nature really helps to clear out, um, let's say, the dust on our eyes or the, um, the stuffiness that is there. And I wanted to say to that regards that um, nowadays often the background field, at least uh, here in the States, is uh, quite inflamed culturally, socially, politically, um, because of COVID, because of climate change. So um, I think it's hard. We have to um, do extra self-care mm -hmm. to clear this background field or at least have it a little bit lighted up so that we don't get so triggered. Mm -hmm. So I think all of us uh, need a little bit more self-care mm -hmm. in, in these times. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the importance of practice and regular practice. Yeah. And, you know, and mm -hmm. psychotherapy can also mm -hmm. be helpful. And being around people that also have kind of a calm feel around them is helpful. And that's not always possible. Let's say we have little children or um, difficult family. You know, sometimes uh, it's not so easy to come to that place. But, you know, every bit of practice helps. And I was just remembering this wonderful book by Sharon Salzburg, Faith, where she says, uh, if we put one step in front of the next, we can have the faith that doors will open. So the faith in the practice. Mm. So if we keep practicing, even little by little, mm. doors will eventually open. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's nice. And um, you mentioned when you were talking about the, the mini mindful pause process, practice that you can do in the middle of the day if you notice you've been triggered or a LERP has been triggered. Um, and you, 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 one of the steps in that that you mentioned was kind of just dropping into your body and being aware of how your body is holding your experience at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I noticed one of your chapters in the book is, um, in fact, there's, there's two chapters. Um, in, in, uh, in the 12 step part of the book where you, you talk about learning to stay with suffering mm -hmm. and breathing through to let be and let go. So that would seem to be, you know, uh, going into this a little bit more deeply, but could yeah. you, could you talk a little bit about, mm -hmm. about that and why it's important? Yes. Um, I think it's when we have time to do this. I remember a, a retreat when I felt really triggered and um and i couldn't leave you could, you, know. could you say a little more about the circuit the story the circumstances oh, yeah. just to some give us a people feeling? who who had really kind of rejected me before and actually um, a local spiritual group um, suddenly were at this four-week retreat so here i was stewing in my own stew basically um, having to work with this. And, it's, and so I said, okay, I'm taking this challenge and I work with this. And I really did with self-compassion, with learning to be with the feelings, with being with the felt sense. And I learned there a lot from Pema Children. And there's this wonderful audiobook by her when pain is the doorway. 
so where she teaches us to not run away to be with the felt sense of what we are experiencing and then sooner or later as everything is changed change will occur and actually an opening and so uh, both of those practices, staying with our suffering and breathing through, which I actually learned from you, you as a pilot. And I learned from Joanna Macy. <laughs> you learned from Joanna Macy. We both learned from Joanna Macy mm -hmm. is, is a wonderful practices because sometimes it's important that we lean into our pain to uh, get through it, mm -hmm. to emerge on the other side. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, so um, as we do that, um, how can we, what are little telltale signs or markers that perhaps um, the long-standing recurring painful pattern, which we, which we now have recognized, oh my goodness, it's turned up again and again and again through my life, coming back maybe dressed in slightly different clothes, but the same pattern. How can I tell um, that with the sort of practices you're describing here, how can I tell that it's, um, it's, loosen it's loosening its grip a little bit, that I'm not quite so much in its power as I was before? I would say that will be very clearly recognizable because mm. you feel when you got lurped you know, uh, one of my Jungian analyst friends calls it, as it, it is as if you put a finger into an electric outlet. My, not every lerp is as drastic, but it can be quite uh, strong, this feeling of getting triggered in an old recurrent wound. And so um, I, I find this, you know, it's like my, my own lerp around abandonment or rejection i just notice um it's much easier now you know it's like uh, there is just not the same grab the same hold on my heart you know it's more like okay this is happening and and it's not uh, leaving a big physical um reaction in me mm -hmm. Okay. And I see that in my clients and my students. Mm -hmm. What a relief that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Um, so that kind of brings me to back to the first part of the book where you talk about awareness when entangled in lerps with others. So mm -hmm. uh, it's one thing to have my longstanding recurrent painful pattern triggered by some event or events. Um, but then if I'm in relationship with somebody and the circumstances have somehow triggered lerps in me and in the other, and mm. we're in relationship and we've got lerp meeting lerp. <laughs> can you say a little bit about that, about what, what, what can mm. we do? And it's hard enough to deal with our own lerps. But... Yeah. Well, it's actually quite common. And I think it's beautifully described by Eckhart Tolle as pain body. And when our pain body rubs another's pain body, then there is something is happening. And I think in my book, Heart Medicine, I bring up the story of Sarah and Judith who worked together and really triggered each other and um, in each other's wounds. And uh, the more one was like herself, she triggered the other and vice versa. And I think because both of them were uh, meditators and had some interest in awareness, they kind of um, were able to, um, to recognize this. But even they had to take several times out from each other to kind of cool off and uh, give some space. So um, I think that quite often happens when we feel really inflamed and triggered, then often uh, we've, we meet a complementary uh, triggered person and that rubs against each other. Mine very difficult is that when it's in, in couples, 
you know, which I think I have one mindful pause for pairs and couples, which I think is in the first book, uh, the hard work, the path of self-compassion, where I talk about that. And, uh, you know, then, then we say, you know, we can be each other's nemesis, but also each other's greatest teachers. Can you, can you point out to somebody else that they've been lurked? Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I would say with my clients, you know, I'm a, yeah. I'm a psychologist, psychotherapist in my daytime work. I think there has to be first some trust developed. I can't just in the first session say, and you got lurked, you know, that's would feel like a, how do we call this in psychology a narcissistic wounding or an empathic failure to do that so i think one has to be very careful and skillful about this but actually for some of my clients after some time they really like the word and they use it themselves and they say oh i got lurked again mm -hmm. and it's actually then becoming a relief for them to give it, you know, a diagnosis and then maybe what do we do about this? So it's not mm. so free floating anxiety and so mysterious and maybe even hopeless anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I think it's important to not use that word as a weapon mm -hmm. between couples. Between couples, I could think maybe or parents and yeah. children. No, don't do that with your child, right? Right. Yeah. So really not diagnosing lerps in someone else. That, right. You know, mm. recognizing it in oneself is mm. something one can do. Yeah, it feels very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so, you know, towards the, the final part of your book, you talk about um, you have a, a chapter called Letting in the Mystery. Yeah. Could you say a little bit about what you mm -hmm. mean? So in the last, uh, well, maybe it's since the 2003, five, when I got to know Ellen Wallace and the last four years or so studying with Dan Brown, um, I got a little bit acquainted with Mahamudra Tsokjen practices. I have been really besides my Theravadan practice, uh, got really curious about this. And um, there is this um, uh, understanding that awareness goes beyond the moment by moment, non-judgmental attention, but that awareness is also something that's a priori there, that's already there. Um, it has the quality of a field, even though it's not a thing. You know, it, it's something that is there and that we can rest into and tap into. And it has a sense of spaciousness and uh, wisdom. And I think we, uh, even from the Theravadan practice, we know that often in the end of long-term retreats, you know, 10 days or four weeks, awareness breaks through and we feel it however it kind of wears off after a few weeks often and so um i felt it very relieving and helpful uh, from my uh, tibetan trained teachers to learn some practices they're called the pointing out practices on how to get to this place of resting and awareness quicker so that I can actually have this experience in my morning meditation. And then from that place, I'm actually able to be more mindful, to be more sharp. It's like a flow state. And to um, have a bit more spaciousness around my experience, but to bring it back to, to uh, being aware and mindful. And I mean, you've come to this after 40 years of, of practice, of Buddhist practice. I mean, do you think um, this is something that is accessible 
to somebody who's just starting out on the road of meditation? Or is this some, is this really an advanced practice? I mean, because mm. you do mention it as yeah. in your book, the, mm. uh, you know, the, the medicine of awareness yeah. you talk about. No, I don't think it has to be as advanced as we might think. Um, for example, studying with Dan Brown, they're very advanced meditators and they're people who are fairly new at it. It's not as difficult as we think. However, these are practices that have been kept very secret for many good reasons. But I think in this time, uh, which is um, a very lurpy time in our culture, in our world, um, where we all get, you know, have, well, no, maybe not everybody, but many of us have mounting challenges to deal with and, and anxieties, I think these are incredibly valuable practices to learn, not as an escape, but as a refuge, as a refuge with which we then can be present. Because I know you are telling me sometimes you're doing these practices on your way to the hospital, which then allows you to be uh, available in a much more spacious way with a very difficult situation with a dying person. And so I think these are practices that are more accessible than we think. But I think it's important to connect them with um, compassion and engagement. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, because in your conclusion, I mean, continuing in the same vein, um, as we're talking, you say many steps, reflecting on all the different steps you've discussed, many steps are critical, but the most challenging step with alert is loosening our identification mm. with the drama uh, in which we're entangled and opening to a wider, more spacious perspective. Ultimately, I have to ground my practice of mindfulness and compassion in deeper soil, the great mystery, the field of awareness, which has the qualities of stillness, presence, aliveness, love and luminous knowing. Rooting the practice in the great mystery finally frees us from our lerps. Can you, do you want to say anything in response to yeah, I think a loosening identification is a really difficult um, task. And um, I remember being sometimes a bit annoyed in retreats when teachers just say, oh, just let go of identification. And it's, it's just so hard. You know, it's, it's such a difficult piece of work. And I think there are different ways to get to it. I describe in that chapter for example, dream work, working with dream images uh, can be a way, embodied imagination can be a way to do that. Or, you know, there, there are different ways to create more space. But um, um, resting in this wider perspective, in the, uh, in the numinous, as Jung called it, in the uh, sacred, in the... Um, in the wider perspective of, of awake awareness, um, I think that really allows us, as we practice that way, for the LERP to uh, lose its hold on us, its grab. Mm. Thank you. Um, my final um, sort of question uh, relates to uh, some uh, comments of the Dalai Lama in his foreword um, and then a, a few lines for use I think speak to this at the very end of your book but the Dalai Lama writes I've come to recognize that nurturing concern for others gives me a sense of satisfaction and joy it's natural to care for oneself however being compassionate towards others is a more effective way of caring for oneself. 
And you say, um, I think it's the very last line in your book, you're talking about the Dalai Lama, you're talking about how, you know, when you were able to travel to India, you would go each year to his teachings in Dharamsala to hear him teaching. You talk about how each year he, in, a, in maybe using a different text, but he comes back to the same message again and again and again, which is about interdependence and our radical interdependence. Um, and and you, you write, now I understand that interdependence is the message for healing the lerps of the world. Mm. And putting those two together, your very, your very final step is service. Mm -hmm. Sharing our healing sets us free. Mm -hmm. um, do you just want to say a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I think the Dalai Lama is so right on in so many things, but especially in this, in that he says, uh, compassion is wise, selfish, wise, selfish. Mm -hmm. Interesting way of putting it, that being compassionate and helpful and in service of others helps us too, because it frees us from what Tara Brach called the delusion of separateness. You know, and that is kind of on a personal level and on a collective level, our big wound. It's this delusion of separateness that we um, feel so separate from others, that there's so much an uh, I versus you and us versus them and higher and lower and and you know, our differences and excluding each other's, which we now see, for example, with COVID vaccines, you know, do we vaccinate everybody? But if we don't, it really costs the whole world because we are all interdependent. And so on a personal and on a collective level, we have to remember our interdependence and know that taking care of each other is ultimately what sets us free because it is practicing that what we really are, which is interdependent. Mm -hmm. You know, we are in truth interdependent and not separate. Mm. And with service, with including everybody, we actually live that truth. And service comes as the 12th step, but is it something that needs to come at the very end when we've sort of worked through as far as we can work things through in terms of our own personal healing, that then we're ready to offer service and compassion to others? Or is it something that can come sooner and be part of the healing process? And and is there a relationship between our wounding and our lerp and the type of service that we can offer others? Mm -hmm. I think all those steps are interchangeable. You don't have to mm -hmm. do them. Uh, just open the book somewhere and see what comes up. So uh, service could come much earlier. And some people start with service. You know, I remember myself, you know, as a teenager working in the hospital and actually working in a nursing home on the uh, floor where people were dying. And I would say that saved me. And so um, uh, I think this can come at any point. But you had the second half of the sentence. What there was, was whether our particular lurk Oh, yeah. Informs the type of service that yes. we can offer. Our... And I know our time is almost out, but there is this concept which comes from Jungian philosophy, the wounded healer. And often our particular wound has something to do with the service we give to others. Not always, you know, all service is wonderful, but sometimes we are expert. Uh, on a different type of wound and especially helpful in that way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and Jacob, uh, we come back to you. <laughs>
Hi, so uh, we have some questions from the uh, audience coming in. And so there's a question from Silva. Uh, she asked, do you think it is possible to heal trauma due to sexual abuse that happened in early childhood? Mm -hmm. Well, um, yes, I think it, uh, the effects of the trauma can definitely lessen. I, I did my um, dissertation about um, incest survivor groups and worked a lot with that. And I think uh, it's definitely needing a lot of care and, and loving attention and a good therapist. And, uh, but I think with meditation practice and uh, psychotherapy together, I think we, we can definitely reach a measure, a significant measure of freedom. There's a question from Lily. Uh, I find that there are shared lerps in my family, which often become ruminating in conversations. What do you think is the best way to handle getting sucked into the lerp? Hmm. Well, um, let's say at a Christmas dinner. <laughs> um, I can relate to that. I came from a refugee family and often there was this victim mentality that was just bounced around uh, over the table endlessly. So um, I think, you know, tact is definitely important, but sometimes we can, um, without being hurtful or provocative, you know, change uh, the situation the, the theme a little bit, um, or maybe just make a, a, a gentle comment like, wow, it seems we all are really still affected by so-and-so. You know, sometimes just making a comment, a statement about what is happening allows one to move on. Would that also, if I might just throw in, I mean, would that also be a situation where a mindful pause might be helpful. I mean, if one feels oneself getting sucked in. Yeah, that definitely, you know, it's like, uh, I, you can't ask everybody to do a mindful pause. I don't think that would go over well. No, no, not everybody. Uh, maybe but in yourself, a very enlightened, yourself. but yourself would definitely be a, a good, a good thing to do. There's a, a question from Gert. Um, she writes, thank you, uh, Radley, for your wide perspective and many ideas to help ourselves and others. Do you have a suggestion for introducing your idea of cultivating self-compassion to children? Yeah, definitely. Actually, as a Mindful Heart program, we started a, a school program, which now became so big that it was taken over by a big Santa Barbara nonprofit. And uh, we called it uh, mindfulness and heartfulness. And uh, we started with five-year-olds. And um, I think the heartfulness was very popular and kids got it very easily. And the program is called Kind Mind. Kind Mind Santa Barbara, yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, that makes me wonder, have you worked at all with the Dalai Lama Center for Peace and Education? Uh, no, I, I wish I would, but um, I usually go, we, we both go to India and before that I took my, my, when my kids were teenagers, I took them to India and to Dharamsala and we would see the Dalai Lama, but I haven't here. I probably should. Um, I know a gentleman in Vancouver, I think you're in Vancouver. Um, he wrote a few books with the Dalai Lama. Yeah, I'm trying to remember his name. I, we posted him for events, I'm forgetting. Yeah, what was his name? We met him in India. and Victor Chan. Victor Chan, right. So best wishes to Victor mm -hmm. Chan and his wife. And uh, we met in Ladakh at the Kumbha Mela or the Kalachakwa. Yeah, your work seems to resonate well with uh, a lot of the work they do. Um, there's a question from Kristen. She writes, hello, I just got your book yesterday, so I've only read the introduction so far. I'm looking forward to reading more. 
I believe in the intro, you talk about working together as we heal. Is there a chapter or practice in particular that would help with having boundaries, but still being giving and compassionate with others? I think I mentioned that uh, when I talk uh, about uh, compassion for others and the world. And so I think boundaries are um, mentioned. And I think, again, the Dalai Lama talks about it when he talks about wise, compassionate and stupid, compassionate. So I think uh, it's important that wisdom and compassion are balanced. You know, so I think it's what is the saying that the uh, bird has two wings to fly, wisdom and compassion. And if we only were on the side of compassion, it can be a little murky. And when we only uh, were on the side of wisdom, there can be a little bit of rigidity. So we need both. And how, if I could just add a kind of a question to that, how does, um, how, how does mindfulness um, protect us? How does mindfulness create uh, does it create a, a boundary? Does you know? Does mm -hmm. uh, what's the relationship between mindfulness and a boundary? And boundary? oh, good question. Yes, I think there is more awareness. You know, awareness <clears throat> about ourselves, about the other. There's um, metacognitive awareness, noticing our own process, our own inner process, and being being finely tuned to the other. Mm -hmm. So I think mindfulness is a wonderful uh, prerequisite to really good boundaries. Can help us to self-monitor in a situation. So yeah. We, yeah. That raises a question for me. Um, uh, I haven't found like through mindfulness practices, meditation practices, that it gives me better discernment and better boundaries like things like you're describing but sometimes also i find that it sort of like peels away sort of some of the sort of defenses or like like uh buffers that uh so things can kind of almost hurt more like the world can feel very sensitive that's true i remember that especially after long retreats coming out to the first gas station and feeling kind of almost raw and uh, to the energies of everybody around. So that is that is true too. But um, I think that's especially something to watch out when you come out of a long retreat. But um, if you do, maybe if you do hours of daily meditation, that would be the case. But if you do, let's say, an hour a day or 45 minutes or half hour a day. Um, I think it would be more protective than a problem. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so we've, we've uh, come to the, the, the end of the, the hour. Is there any kind of last things you want to share? Mm. Well, just that I'm really curious about uh, people's comments and ideas. Uh, I think my uh, uh, on our website or my website, there's my email, radley at gmail.com. I think this is a uh, book is meant to be the beginning of a conversation. You know, in some ways, I think I haven't really seen others write exactly that kind of book. You know, it's in a way a bit of a new bridge to make. And so I hope there will be a lot of other pieces of work, like articles, courses, books that take that a little further. So I would really invite a, a conversation with whoever would like to have it with me or us. And also, you know, you're really welcome to join our uh, meditations. You know, I teach especially the awareness meditations Monday nights and in the early morning at uh, 7.30 to 8. Pacific time. Pacific time. And uh, Sunday mornings we both teach together. Sunday mornings quite a few people from Europe join us and 
Monday and Wednesday nights, people from Asia. So uh, it's always lovely to see um, new faces and new questions and comments. So everybody's invited and it's free. And that's at um, mindfulheartprograms.org. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for this uh, profound conversation. Um, and I know that the word LERP is now going to be part of my vocabulary. <laughs> for better or for worse. For better or for worse, I, can, I can't unthink, un, un, unhear it. Um, and just a reminder to everybody, you can, um, you can purchase uh, heart medicine from Banyan Books at banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. And you can find out more about Raduli's work at mindfulheartprograms.org or raduliweininkerphd.com. And you can also find out about Michael Carney's work at michaelcarneymd.com. So just uh, thanks again. It's been a real uh, deep honor to have you guys with us tonight. Thank you so much, Jacob. Thanks for being such a gracious host. Really <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you very much. And thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>